This is the Trails Church Podcast. At the Trails Church, our mission is to glorify God by making disciples through the gospel in community and on mission. If you'd like more information about our church, visit our website, thetrails.org. Now here's today's podcast. Open your Bible with me to Philippians chapter 2. The Christmas season rings with songs of the Savior's birth. Advertisements on television choose carols for background music. Department stores broadcast over their loudspeakers of the baby born in Bethlehem. Concerts are conducted that center around the good news of great joy. Standing among the most familiar and beloved songs of the season is the carol, O Come, O Come, Emmanuel. What was originally an anonymous Latin poem penned in the 8th century was first published in English in 1710. The opening line of the lyric reminds us of those who waited for the promised Messiah. O come, O come, Emmanuel, and ransom captive Israel, who mourns in lowly exile here until the Son of God appear. The context of the carol commemorates a time when the people of God were held captive by an enemy, most likely Babylon, and are longing to be set free. The Israelites mourn because they're not in their homeland anymore. They are in exile, singing to God for rescue, for salvation. There's a final verse of the carol that is left out of our English translation, if it's perfect for where we left off in our study of Exodus. Listen to how it echoes with Exodus imagery. O come, O come, thou Lord of might, who to thy tribes on Sinai's height in ancient times didst give the law in cloud and majesty and awe. The carol concludes by calling On the Lord of might, who gave a redeemed people his law at Sinai in the thundering cloud and flashing majesty of his presence. It's this covenantal God, the God of Moses that they call upon, the very one who delivered his people from slavery in Egypt and saved them with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. And then with the final repeat of the refrain, it belts out, Rejoice! Rejoice! Emmanuel shall come to thee, O Israel. The song points to what the prophet Isaiah promised, how a virgin would conceive and bear a son, and his name should be called Emmanuel, God with us. And this is where I want us to hang our thoughts this morning. On the one that the carols call by many names. This one carol, O Come, O Come, Emmanuel, calls Christ Emmanuel, the rod of Jesse, wisdom from on high, the key of David, the bright morning star, the king of nations. And each of those titles are pregnant with meaning. They help us understand the importance of the one being sung. In fact, many of the carols of this season contain such 
wonderful Christology. They teach us who Jesus is, his identity. And so what I'd like to do this first week of Advent is look together at an even older song that tells of this one who was long foretold. A song that teaches us that this baby born away in a manger is in fact Christ the Lord. My prayer is as we look at these lyrics that they would not only inform our minds, though we want our minds to be filled with truth of who Christ is, but they would also transform our lives with the truth they tell. So before we look at our text, may I ask you, who is Christ to you? Who is Christ to you? In the Christ hymn contained in Philippians chapter 2, verses 6 through 11, we find a song that sings of the person and work of Jesus. Tucked into a pastoral letter written to one of the earliest church plants is an ancient hymn that magnifies the person and work of Christ. Uh, this passage perhaps covers more time and space than any other text in Scripture. What I mean by that is it begins in eternal realms of glory and then plummets to a barn outside of Bethlehem. It considers the cross of Calvary and then ascends back to the very place it started, only now accompanied by the praise of every tribe, of every tongue, and every nation, declaring Jesus is Lord. I want to summarize our passage with four words that describe the four movements of this Christ hymn. They are exaltation, incarnation, crucifixion, and exaltation. I didn't, make it, I didn't mess up there. I said exaltation twice. You'll see why. Would you stand with, your, to me, uh, with me to your feet? I did mess up there. As we read from God's holy and inerrant word, Philippians chapter 2, 6 through 11 is our text. I'm going to begin reading in verse 5 just to give us a sense of the whole thought. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours, in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. The grass withers, the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. Amen. The song begins with exaltation. There are two truths we should note which are presented in the exaltation of Christ that occurred in eternity. Scripture says first that Jesus Christ was in the form of God. Now, the first question we must ask is, when 
was Jesus in the form of God? The answer lies ahead in verse 7. He was in the form of God before he was born. That's right. Before Jesus was born, he already was. Kids, Jesus doesn't have a birthday in the true sense of the word because he has always existed. Before Mary and Joseph made their pilgrimage to Bethlehem, before shepherds were keeping their flocks by night, before a host of angels sang glory to God in the highest, peace, goodwill toward men, Jesus existed. Before John the Baptist and Isaiah, before David and Moses, Jesus existed. Before, before oceans were given their boundaries and mountains were assigned their height, before time and space were fashioned, there was Jesus eternally existing. John chapter 1 verse 1 explains, In the beginning was the Word, that's Jesus, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. John 17.5 adds, and this is Jesus praying, he says, Father, glorify me in your own presence, listen to this, with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. Before the world existed, Christ was clothed in infinite, unimaginable glory. The hymn uses careful language to describe the identity of Jesus when it says he was in the form of God. That phrase comes from the Greek word morphe, which only occurs two times in the New Testament. A form is the visible expression of something's nature. The form shares the same nature, the same characteristics of something, not only on the outside, but in the meaning of this word, also on the inside. So here we learn that Jesus is the visible expression, the manifestation of God through and through. Christ is the glory of the Father, a demonstration of who he is. Jesus articulates this thought in John 14, 9. He says, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father, because I and the Father are one. Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3, amends this idea by saying, he is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. So Jesus was in the form of God. The second truth that's presented here is that Christ was equal with God. He's equal with God the Father. Now, the actual phrase reads that Christ didn't count equality with God a thing to be grasped. But we shouldn't move too quick because it's no small matter that Scripture says that Jesus is equal with God. He wasn't mostly God or a little bit God. He's fully God. The Bible teaches us that there is one God in three persons. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Each person of the Trinity is co-eternal always existing, co-existent with one another, and co-equal. We see all three persons of the one true God a few places in the Scripture. One is in the Gospel of Matthew when Jesus is baptized by John the Baptist. 
God the Son physically goes under the water. The voice of God the Father pronounces, this is my Son in whom I'm well pleased, while God the Holy Spirit descends like a dove upon Christ. We hear the three equal persons of the Godhead in one of our most beloved benedictions that we read so often. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God the Father, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Yet the equality that the Son shared with the Father, it says, was not something to be grasped. The phrase means that the Son didn't count equality with God a thing to be exploited or to be taken advantage of. There is a massively striking contrast in these ideas. The one who is equal with God didn't take that equality as something to be taken advantage of, but instead utilized for the good of others. He stewards his position not to get, but to give. One scholar said, giving, not grasping, expresses the very nature of God. And haven't you known him to be a good giver? So, in the first exaltation, Christ is in the form of God, and Christ is equal with God. Isn't that amazing? Okay, I want us to marvel now at the incarnation. It's the second word, incarnation. The season we now move into is marked by the wonder of how God Almighty bowed so low in becoming man. J.I. Packer describes it like this. The Word became flesh. The Almighty appeared on earth as a helpless human baby, unable to do more than lie and stare and wriggle and make noises, needing to be fed and changed and taught to talk like any other child. And there was no illusion or deception in this, the babyhood of God was a reality. The more you think about it, the more staggering it gets. Nothing in fiction is so fantastic as is this truth of the incarnation. I love that sentence. I'll read it again to you. Nothing in fiction is so fantastic as is this truth of the incarnation. This is the real stumbling block in Christianity. I just wonder if the incarnation itself has been a stumbling block in you becoming a Christian. In this section, focused on the incarnation, there are two more primary truths to point out. First, Christ emptied himself. The song says in verse 7 that Christ emptied himself by taking the form of of a servant. The phrase doesn't imply that the Son of God emptied himself of his deity through some sort of theological subtraction. Paul in no way is suggesting that Christ might be emptied of his position as God, rather that he divested his position. John Calvin says that Christ indeed could not have divested himself of Godhead, but he kept it concealed for a time that under the weakness of the flesh, it might not be seen. I remember the language of the King James Version 
long ago saying that Christ made himself of no reputation. That gets at the heart of this. And this passage actually explains for us how Christ added by subtraction. He emptied himself by taking on flesh. We notice also that Christ was born in the likeness of man. And here is where Packer gets at. The more you think about it, the more staggering it gets. This truth changes everything, that Christ was born in the image of man. Let's remember that for thousands of years, people had waited for this moment. From the first time, this promised seed of the woman was whispered in Genesis chapter 3, 15, who would once come and crush the head of the serpent, so history was waiting on this promised baby. We hear in the words of Isaiah, for unto us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And now this mighty God is lying in a manger. The maker of Mary now marries son. And here we come to this most amazing truth. The baby who laid in the manger was both fully man and fully God. Very God of very God, the creed says. At the same time, Christ is 100% God and 100% man. Now, our culture uh, rejects that. Even the church is confused over that. But the Bible is clear. Jesus was 100% God, 100% man. Another way to say this is that Christ is one person with two natures blended together. We've, we've, we've said already that Christ did not empty himself of his deity, but Scripture also says he became fully human. Fully human. The baby would be helplessly dependent on his mother in the early stages of his life. Christ would grow as a boy. He would learn new things. Luke chapter 2, verse 40 says that he grew and became strong, filled with wisdom. The humanity of Christ is not an imagination or some sort of divine trick. Christ was truly human. Paul uses this phrase, in the likeness of men, to show that there's, there's nothing well, there's multiple things in view here. One is that there's nothing specifically unique into how he, was, how he appeared. He looked and sounded like everyone else. Yet he was not completely like everyone else, was he? This phrase also leaves room for us to consider the sinlessness of Christ. Well, he was born of a woman. She was a virgin woman. And he had God himself for his father. He was born sinless, different than you and me, born into sin. Let's just pause for a moment and, and think together. Why would the maker of all empty himself by taking on flesh, being born in the likeness of men? Why would he do that? The answer is love. Love, 
for a people that he had chosen long before, who in the fullness of time he would save. 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 9 says, Though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you, by his poverty, might become what we were not, rich. We sing of this often, veiled in flesh the Godhead see. Hail the incarnate deity, pleased as man with men to dwell. Jesus, our Emmanuel. The second section of this hymn focuses in on the incarnation. The third word to summarize our passage is crucifixion. Crucifixion. In verse 8, the hymn reaches the lowest note of its melody and hangs on the word cross. The most shameful way that a person could be killed was endured by the Son of God. Romans didn't even like to use the word. It was understood in upper society You wouldn't use such a vile term in public. A Roman lawyer named Cicero described how terrible crucifixion was. To a blind Roman citizen, it's a crime. To flog him is an abomination. To slay him is almost an act of murder. To crucify him is what? There's no fitting word that can possibly describe so horrible a deed. But our Savior was bound. He was flogged. He was slain. And he was crucified. All for love's sake became poor. The first reality of our text reveals is the astonishing depth of humility in his work on the cross as Christ humbled himself. Paul began his song telling us of the great heights of the person of Christ, how he existed eternally. And then we witness the humility of Christ in the act of the incarnation. Yet the demonstration of his humility grew deeper and deeper with each phase. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. A death that was in every way a humiliation. Accused of crimes he had not committed whipped before an onlooking crowd, mocked by many, given a crown of thorns, wrapped in a borrowed purple robe and nailed to a tree, exposed in front of all. The one who had been the object of angels' praise becomes the object of scorners' insults. The one who breathed into existence all things breathes his last. The author of life dies. And the reason he died was for us. Was to rescue us from sin. The second truth I want to present about the crucifixion is that Christ humbled himself, but also Christ died in our place. The old hymn says it well. Bearing shame and scoffing rude, in my place condemned he stood. 
That's exactly right. The cross should have been ours. Now, are, are there other reasons that Jesus died? Yeah, there are, there are many. He died to bring glory to the Father. He died to defeat the works of Satan. He died a death so that we would never have to die finally. But I'd like us to think of one thing specifically this morning, that Christ died for our sins. Christian, Christ died for your sin. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21 says, For our sake, God made him to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become something that we were not before, the righteousness of God. So on the cross, as Jesus died, he absorbs the wrath of God, the righteous anger of God towards sin. So that if you're now in Christ, not one ounce of God's wrath remains for you. That's the message of this season. That this baby born in Bethlehem would grow and bear the cross of Calvary for a completely undeserving people. That's you and me. He bears the full weight of the wrath of God. And instead of the punishment that we deserve, you know what we're given? The very righteousness of Jesus. The perfect obedience of Christ is now credited to us. That's why the crucifixion for us is just everything. It's the heart of the gospel. Jesus dying in our place. If you want a shorthand summary of the gospel... Those five words, Jesus died in my place. Have you believed those words? The third stop is crucifixion. And finally, we turn our attention to exaltation once again. I didn't mess up. We're back where we began. Only some things have changed. Verse 9 says... Therefore, God has highly exalted him. Now, we must, we must first deal with the word therefore, and let's look at how it connects all that's preceded it now to what will follow. The first half of our text showed how each step of Christ's humility was lower than the one before. First, Christ in eternity the humble king counted not equality a thing to be grasped. And so he put his humility on display in taking on flesh in the incarnation, being born in the form of man, being born in our likeness. The third step was Christ enduring the work of the cross as he hung on the most shameful of punishments and in doing so stood in the place of sinners. And then this fourth and final step of humility the lowest of the low was in his dying. There's nothing more he could do. There's nothing lower he could go. Christ had plummeted from the heights of heights to the deepest of depths. And then there's this massive hinge. He didn't stay there. The closing verses of the song show the Father, God the Father, do 
this won't surprise you now, two things in regard to his son. The first is the father exalted the son. The Greek rendering for this word exalted is the only time we see it in the whole New Testament. There's really not, a, it's a compound word, so we've got to just create some new compound words like super exalted, super elevated. It's a, there's no one more exalted than Jesus. That's what he wants you to know. There's no one as high as Jesus. No one so magnificent as Jesus. No one so worthy as Jesus. And this exaltation by no means is saying that Christ is more God than he was before. Or that he's higher than he was before. Because God cannot improve on being God. He was and he is and he ever will be. He's unchanging. He cannot be improved. What it does mean is that Christ, the God-man, who has now taken on flesh, completing the work of salvation, is now given the highest seat, the seat of God, the exaltation of God. God had never been so low. Man had never been so high. The Father exalted the Son. And next we see that God has given Jesus the name that is above all. And for us to understand this, let's first think about what this might mean. The name that is above every name. When Paul says that the Father bestowed or graced or gave the Son this name above all names, it's this connection between deity and humanity enjoined as the name that is above all names. At the name that is mentioned in this hymn of Christ specifically, Look at the very last word of the song. Look at it there. To the glory of God the Father. That word, God. Well, only one person's called that, right? Throughout all Scripture. And now, Jesus is being called God. Jesus is Lord. Yahweh, the Son who shares the very nature of God. The one who is equal with God. And now, after his humbling takes the name of God. Jesus is Lord. There is so much confusion in the church on the nature of Christ. I don't want you to be confused. I want us to look at our Bibles and see what it teaches us about the real and biblical Jesus. Uh, and to know it so well that when we hear these winds of doctrine that blow through, we can just smell it. Oh, that's not right. And we stand fixed on what the word of God says. Upholding the nature of Jesus. In a couple of weeks, we're going to look at another Christ hymn from Colossians chapter 1. And marvel together at who Jesus is once again. But the New Testament is singing to us who Jesus is. Who the Savior is. Well, Boaz, this doesn't feel very... Uh, well, like, what do we do with this? Do you have a list of applications for us today? No. I just want us to look at Jesus. <laughs> That's what I want us to do. Well, it's the beginning of Advent. Do you have anything for us? Well, maybe a couple of things. 
what could this old song, like how could this old song shape us even this month of Advent, of remembering the waiting and looking to Christ? I just thought of just four serious things that we all work through. Are you anxious? Do you fight anxiety? Look to the Christ who is elevated, who rules and reigns over all things for all of time, the one who holds your life in his hand. Are you prideful? Do you feel the pride creeping up in the way you talk to your spouse, or your children, coworkers? Look to Christ, who humbled himself. The perfect example of humility. By the way, that's what Paul wants to do with this hymn. You can read the rest of Philippians to see how it fits in its context. What about your sin? What about your sin? Do you carry it still? Is it a burden you shoulder still? Perhaps it is the incarnation that's caused you to reject Christ. But perhaps it's other reasons. You've just been running. Because you, you love your sin. The scripture's very clear. Sin pays a wage. And the wage that sin pays to sinners is not life but death and there's one way to be saved there's one way to be forgiven of sin and it's by repenting of sin turning from it from the sins that you hold so tightly to lay those down and instead repent of sin and trust Christ to forgive you even Christian, are there sins that you carry that you need to look to the cross and crucify them to put those things to death in you, even today? Do you need hope? Do you need hope as you look into the future? Do you see headlines and news tags and are you filled with fear? Look to Christ, who is the praise of every tribe and tongue and nation. We know how this thing ends. Jesus wins. The Jesus sung of in this little song, tucked into this little pastoral letter written to a little church plant, in some ways different than ours, in some ways probably a lot like ours. And I just pray that in these words, exaltation, incarnation, crucifixion, and back to exaltation, they might help frame the way that we see our king. But they might frame the way we look back at the first advent that we celebrate now. And then orient our hearts to look forward to the second advent. And we might sing a song as well as we pray and long for his return. Using borrowed language. Oh come, oh come, Emmanuel. Let's pray now. Lord, I pray that in this season of waiting that you would orient our hearts around your return. That we would pray with the scriptures, Maranatha, come quickly. 
you would untangle our hearts from temporary, fleeting things, from sinful things, and latch our hearts to Christ. Lift our eyes to the glory and splendor, majesty of the one who was, the one who is, and the one who is to come. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening to this podcast from The Trails Church. We hope you have been encouraged, equipped, and edified by time spent together in God's Word. And again, if you'd like to find out more about The Trails Church, visit our website, thetrails.org.